My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to Episode 7. This week, I am delighted to welcome Jocelyn Gly, former founding editor of 99U, who will be talking about her book, Unsubscribe, How to Kill Email Anxiety, Avoid Distractions, and Get Real Work Done. Challenges which are very familiar to all of us these days, so I'm anticipating a lot of people being very grateful for Jocelyn's advice. As I record this, the sun is back with a vengeance here in Bristol, and as usual, in hot weather, we Brits are doing our best to enjoy it, while maybe secretly wishing it would just cool down a little bit so things can get back to normal. This week, I have been in catch-up mode after finishing the final edits for season one of the show. When I'm in product launch mode, I tend to focus on the main creative project, and serving my coaching clients. And anything that's non-essential or non-urgent tends to get left behind for a little bit. So there's a little bit of backlog piles up on some of the paperwork and stuff. So now I am sorting out the office, pottering around, doing lots of relatively undemanding tasks, and enjoying taking it a little easier this week. But I do have one exciting creative adventure this week, Tonight, I'm going to a show by the Impromptu Shakespeare Company, who will be improvising an entirely new Shakespeare play on the spot. It sounds impossible, so I'm looking forward to seeing how they do it. And not only am I going to the show tonight, but on Saturday, I have signed up for the acting workshop, where I will learn, apparently, how to improvise some Shakespeare myself. That's right. I'll be trying to improvise the work of the greatest writer and dramatist who ever lived. How hard can it be? Well, dear listener, I am about to find out. And next week, I will give you a full and frank account of how I get on. As usual, when I volunteer for something inspiring that I'm not sure that I can do, I am ridiculously excited and a little bit nervous. But isn't that always the way with the best things in life? So, without much further ado, let us proceed with Ye Show. <laughs> In the last two episodes, I've proposed that for us as creative professionals, career progression does not come from climbing the traditional career ladder. It comes from creating assets that will generate ongoing value for us during our careers. These assets can include our portfolio of creative work, our brand, our professional network, our website, the intellectual property in our work, and so on. As well as giving us a more measurable sense of career progression than climbing the ladder, these assets are the key to creating long-term security, prosperity, and creative fulfillment. So, what does all of this mean for you on a Monday morning? Well, assuming you're not independently wealthy, you can't afford to put all your eggs in the asset creation basket. As we saw last week, it's too risky. You might slave away for five years at your novel, and it turns out to be a big hit that transforms your life. Or, it might sink without trace leaving you feeling you're back where you started. Unless you are uncommonly lucky, it will take months, if not years, before you gain serious traction from the assets you create. Meanwhile, you need to balance asset creation with meeting your obligations in the short term. In my book, Productivity for Creative People, I talk about the four types of work you could be doing on any given day. Number one, ongoing work. 
Work you have to do every day, every week, or every month to fulfill your obligations and keep the show on the road. Things like answering email, meetings with colleagues, serving your clients, and doing your accounts. Number two, events. Work related to one-off occasions or events that happen at longer intervals than a month, such as an exhibition, a live gig, an annual conference, or a product launch. Number three, backlogs. Things you wish you'd done already and need to catch up on. This is typically boring but necessary stuff like backing up your files, doing your taxes, or replying to emails. And last but not least, number four, asset creation. Investing time in creating something that will generate ongoing value in the future. Now, we all have ongoing work to do, but if you spend all your time on this, you will spend the rest of your career in an endless grind. Maybe you have the energy for this in your 20s, but believe me, by the time you reach your 40s, it won't be so appealing. Events are exciting and may well be some of the most memorable experiences of your career. And some types of event actually help you create assets. For example, if you're a performer, they become your track record. Or if you're an entrepreneur, a product launch may be critical to your success. But as with ongoing work, for most of us, there's a danger that you can spend your life working from event to event with not much to show at the end of it. Clearing a backlog feels great and it's well worth doing, but it will only get you to zero. It clears the decks and frees up your mental bandwidth for the next challenge, but it doesn't move you forward in any significant way. Asset creation is what truly moves you forward, creatively, personally, professionally, and financially. So the most successful and fulfilled creatives are the ones who carve out time for asset creation, in spite of the fact it's never urgent in the world's eyes, in spite of the fact there are no guarantees, in spite of the fact that there are always distractions and temptations for instant gratification. In spite of the fact it will take time, grit, and more patience than you ever thought you had in you. If you're up for a challenge, here's a way to make it happen. Firstly, as we said last week, take a little time to reflect on your professional ambitions and decide on the kind of assets that will help you achieve these. For a list of different types of creative asset, go to the show notes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash 7. Once you've decided which asset to create next, carve out time each week to start creating it. How much time? As much as you can afford. Google famously lets its engineers spend 20% of their time on pet projects that could turn into game-changing products. Even if you can only devote 10% or 5% of your time to asset building each week, over time it will add up. Focus on building one asset at a time. Only once you're up and running with one of them should you consider starting another one. For example, get into a solid routine of producing art before you start blogging or sharing your images online. Finally, don't forget the one asset that underpins them all, yourself. Anytime you learn a new skill or test your courage or step out of your comfort zone in pursuit of a meaningful goal, you're developing yourself. And as I keep repeating on this show, you are the most valuable asset you can ever create. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school on your creative writing masters or wherever else you learned your craft. 
Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. If you're a 21st century creative, you're probably familiar with 99U, the iconic brand for creative professionals on a mission to empower the creative community. The website, 99u.com, is a treasure trove of advice and inspiration, as are the 99U magazine and the trilogy of books, Manage Your Day-to-Day, Maximize Your Potential, and Make Your Mark. As well as these publications, 99U hosts the creative community online at the Behance Network and at a conference in New York every spring. My guest today is Jocelyn Gly, who was the founding editor of 99U and so takes a lot of the credit for turning the company into the powerhouse it is today. I had the pleasure of working with Jocelyn for five years when she edited my articles for 99U.com and the 99U books. Right from the start, I realised I was in the hands of a true professional. She totally got where I was coming from as a writer, and unlike some editors, she's very highly attuned to the concerns and aspirations of creative professionals. So, as soon as I decided to launch a podcast, I knew I wanted Jocelyn to be one of my first guests. Jocelyn left 99U in 2015 and is now an independent writer and publisher. In her own words, she's obsessed with how we can find more creativity and meaning in our work. Her latest book is Unsubscribe, How to Kill Email Anxiety, Avoid Distractions and Get Real Work Done. As the title suggests, it's as much about the psychology and purpose of email as it is about tips and techniques. In this conversation, Jocelyn and I discuss the growth of 99U, how creators can best navigate troubling times, as well as practical ways to keep on top of email and use our time more meaningfully. Welcome, Jocelyn. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm curious about what drew you to writing as a career and also why this particular kind of writing. And I I know you do other things as well, but I get the sense that writing's at the heart of what you do. Yeah, definitely is at the heart of what I do. I mean, I think um, I've been drawn to both writing and editing probably since I was a teenager um, in kind of all different forms. Um, You know, I made a zine when I was in high school, um, and then I did um, an MFA screenwriting program um, when I was in college, then I did some short fiction, and now I do a lot more sort of nonfiction, uh, you know, almost more business-oriented writing. But I think at the center of it, there's always just sort of been this, um, I guess, urge to communicate ideas and to, um, you know, change people's minds and sort of, um, you know, help people maybe change their behavior for the better or kind of give them interesting ideas. I don't know, something around that that kind of pertains, you know, that sort of moves across all of those different worlds of, uh, you know, fiction um, or nonfiction or even just, you know, curating things as an editor, kind of presenting ideas in a new and um, meaningful way, I guess, is kind of the thread there, I think. Okay. And I know a lot of people associate you with 99U. 
And, you know, before 99U came along, there was nothing quite like it for creatives. And there's probably still isn't because, you know, you've got the website, 99U.com, uh, where you and I met, where you were my editor. Mm-hmm. There's the, the network, the Behance Network, the books, the magazine, the conferences. There's a unique character to everything that's got that 99U stamp. So I'm curious, what was it like for you to be a founding member of the team? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, it was unique in in two ways. One, as you kind of point out, there were a lot of different aspects to it in a way that's sort of unique for a brand, you know, that there were sort of all these different incarnations, a magazine, a conference, a book series, a website, Um, but also sort of the driving mission of the brand, um, which was really this idea that you know, it's not about ideas. It's about making ideas happen. You know, the original idea for the brand was really to shift the focus from idea generation to idea execution, because we were kind of, you know, looking around and we were just seeing so many, um, you know, resources and conferences and things that were really about how to generate more ideas. And we thought, well, you know, the problem for most creative people isn't really generating ideas. We all have a lot of ideas. It's actually executing on those ideas, you know, and sort of pushing them fully to fruition. And so that was kind of the jumping off point for 99U. And, um, you know, I think it ultimately became something that was sort of useful for uh, almost provided sort of a kind of more maybe business oriented advice for creative sometimes, and then kind of creative advice for people more from the business side. So it kind of worked both ways in that aspect. And, uh, you know, as part of, as far as being involved from the beginning, um, and obviously I was working very closely with Scott Belsky, who is the founder of Behance, as well as um, Matthias Correa, who is the head designer and co-founder of Behance, and, and you know, a number of other people as well. Um, but I think what was so cool about it was, you know, being in that startup environment and um, everyone was very much a sort of incredibly talented overachiever. And, you know, that really kind of pushes you to up your game in a lot of ways. And at the same time, one of the things that was really great about being in that role was that I just had this um, very large amount of autonomy. So there was just a lot of room to experiment. So, um, you know, the brand actually originally started as a conference and then later we evolved kind of the more editorial side of this website and then the uh, book series and then the magazine. And, you know, there was ve- there was just this really great kind of open-minded attitude of, you know, if you want to try something and you kind of have a good reason for doing it and, you know, you can kind of find the money to do it, um, you know, let's try it. And that was just such a great, um, you know, a great attitude to be, to be working within. And is that, having been to several of the conferences, there's a real, very distinctive atmosphere about it, very particular kind of attitude, op- open-mindedness and enthusiasm about the people I met. And it was always fun to ask, you know, the, the question, what do you do? Because you, people would come out with so many weird and wonderful things, and yet there was a common attitude. Is that something you filtered for deliberately? Um, we definitely didn't filter deliberately in terms of, um, you know, curating who, um, you know, was allowed to attend or anything of that nature. But I think that, um, there were a couple of factors that kind of led to that. And one was having this very clear mission that the conference was about making ideas happen, right? It was about doing things. So it was about people who take action. And so I think it drew people you know, who were of that mindset or kind of wanted to shift into that mindset. So I think that was one aspect of it. And the other thing was, you know, just as a kind of curator and an editor and, you know, someone shaping the voice of the brand and, you know, who we would put on stage, I always tried, you know, the kind of overall idea was not let's hold up everyone as sort of these untouchable, you know, heroes of the creative process or entrepreneurs who've achieved something that you could never achieve. You know, that's not what we wanted people on stage to communicate. What we wanted them to communicate was this sort of demystification of the creative process. Because, you know, the biggest thing that I learned, um, particularly from watching so many incredible talks at the conference, was that in many ways, nobody really knows what the hell they're doing. You know, there's sort of, <laughs> you would see someone like, um, you know, Sebastian Thrun, who is the, um, you know, the guy who ran Google X, which created the self-driving car and Google Glass or someone like Tony um, Fidel, who started, you know, created the iPod and started Nest, you know, and they would talk about how they just were figuring things out as 
they went along because, you know, that's just the nature of what the creative process is. Um, and so there wasn't this, you know, we very much tried to not have people kind of tell, I think what you get with a lot of conferences and even a lot of interviews with people is, you know, people are looking back and they're connecting the dots and they tell this sort of very pat story about how things happened. Um, which sounds nice, but it makes it seem much less attainable to, you know, the listener, the reader. And so we wanted to kind of push back on that and have people, you know, talk about when they messed up and show the messy parts. And, and that really has the impact of helping, um, you know, things I think seem more realistic and more attainable to the people in the audience. And it certainly did for me. And so the interesting thing, uh, you know, I think for me about the 99U experience and also, um, you know, going back to kind of my beginnings as a writer, um, you know, I originally started working with Scott, the, the founder of Behance, because, you know, I had like a screenplay that I was writing and I hadn't been able to finish it. And I was like, oh, I got it, you know, because I was like working and doing other things on the side, you know, and I couldn't find the time, you know, sort of classic thing that we all do. Um, yeah. and I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to, you know, we're going to work and like totally focus on idea execution. I'm going to like figure out how to get this done, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, then you know, proceeded to spend, you know, this next six or seven years, you know, interviewing hundreds of designers, creatives, and entrepreneurs about how they make ideas happen, you know, listening, curating all these talks at the conference, um, you know, kind of reviewing all the research around those types of ideas, you know, how people are more productive, how they push their careers forward. And, you know, so kind of now at the end of it, I have this kind of, you know, crazy sort of font of knowledge um, as I pursue, um, you know, some of my own new creative projects that really helps me, um, you know, in so many ways, whether it's just figuring out how to organize my day or whether it's the fact that I completely, you know, kind of can't bullshit myself when I want to procrastinate because <laughs> I know exactly like psychologically why I'm trying to do it, you know, those types yeah. of things. So, uh, you know, I think it's one of those things where you kind of, um, I know you just kind of have this nagging problem that you want to solve, you know, which was for me was thinking about creative projects and how we finish them. And, you know, then I kind of ended up, you know, in this kind of unique company where I got to just sort of focus on that for many, many years, which is really cool. So you're now officially unstoppable. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we were talking about this earlier, that to say that we're living in interesting times at the moment would be an understatement <laughs> wherever you live in the world. And I guess one of the questions I've been thinking about, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is what role do you see for creatives at this point in history, shaping the brave new world of the 21st century with all the, the challenges, political, economic, social, environmental, however you want to frame it. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, dark times call for desperate measures, right? And so I think from a creative perspective, from an artistic perspective, that's uh, very fruitful. You know, it means that um, there's kind of even greater... Um, room for impact. But I also think that it means that the the challenge to even doing the creative work and sort of finishing those projects is even greater. And that's what I've kind of been thinking about a lot. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, really what distracts people from doing, you know, their sort of most important work, because I think that we're in this, this era of ever-increasing technology in which the amount of things that we have access to, be the apps or emails or social media that can distract us, you know, are increasing exponentially. And on top of that, you have this news cycle, you know, here in America, of course, about Trump, you know, yeah. in the UK and Europe, there are many other, um, you know, politicians rising of kind of, you know, similar uh, mindset to Trump. And depending on who you are, that can induce a lot of anxiety and you, you know, watching that news yeah. cycle. And, you know, what happens is, especially when you're following it on, you know, social media and you're following it on this kind of almost hour to hour, minute to minute, second to second basis, 
is that it starts to feel like monitoring the news cycle itself is doing something or accomplishing something. You tweet something, uh, you know, out about, you know, maybe a, a petition from the ACLU or, you know, you tweet something, um, you know, that Trump did with some commentary on it. And it kind of feels like that in and of itself is doing something. But I think what happens is that those kind of small acts kind of drain away our energy to actually go out into, you know, the real world interact with real people and affect actual change. And beyond that, and, you know, that's just addressing this, this idea of, you know, kind of social change or, you know, expressing your political views or fighting for your political views. But I think also on the artistic side, you know, you have to be very careful about protecting yourself from the distraction that that news cycle provides. I don't necessarily recommend that you completely disengage with it because I think it is a very important political moment, but I do think that you have to selectively engage with it because that anxiety that the news cycle produces can really become quite consuming and it can be a huge distraction and a real drain on your creative attention. So I think there's this kind of interesting, um, you know, sort of huge possibility that this social political moment um, provides and that there sort of are these dark times and there is this huge possibility of making an impact, of doing something with your art that really says something to people, that really changes their mind. But at the same time, I think it's very dangerous because um, you can get a little bit too caught up in that in that news cycle and that can kind of drain away, um, you know, your impetus to really devote the amount of time and energy that you need to to push those those creative projects forward. What I'm hearing here is there's a big question here about what constitutes meaningful action. Because on the one hand, are we artists just fiddling while Rome burns? On the other hand, is checking the news, checking the news cycle, tweeting, even making a noise about the political situation, is that really making more of a difference? No, and I was going to say, I mean, I think, you know, it's up to you, of course, to, uh, you know, assess what's what's meaningful. But I think um, I've actually been um, riffing on this idea of, uh, you know, fake news, which is, of course, sort of inescapable these days, right? And everyone's kind of constantly mm -hmm. talking about it. But I think there's actually something that is draining even more time and attention and energy away from us, which is this idea of fake productivity, Right. This idea yeah. that there's so many things that we do uh, when we're supposedly, you know, kind of hard at work and whether it's <laughs> checking our email or monitoring yeah. our social media feed um, or, you know, looking at our stats or, you know, figuring out how to like integrate MailChimp subscribers into Slack. So you get an update with a Beyonce GIF, like every time someone subscribes to your newsletter, right. you know, we have all these things that are these really just um, advanced forms of busy work that kind of feel like you're accomplishing something, but I really think are a form of, of kind of fake productivity. So I think, you know, that's something that we need to start thinking about. And that's something that's particularly dangerous, um, for creatives who are, as as you all know, Mark, you know, sort of the most uh, distractible breed of person, mm -hmm. um, you know, so we're always kind of looking for an excuse, you know, and, and our ability to filter out noise is is um, very limited, you know, and that's something that also is a good thing, right? Because it makes it very sensitive to the world around us, very attuned, yeah. but it also yeah. makes us very hard to kind of, you know, shut the noise out. So I think we have to be kind of even more vigilant about that uh, than we maybe had, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Listening to you, it strikes me that a lot of the, the ideas and techniques that you talk about in Unsubscribe, your book, about managing email, I'm actually using them to manage the news these days, deliberately not checking in too often mm -hmm. and recognizing, because, you know, there's a certain point that I want to be informed and I need to know about stuff. But beyond that, then it can become just spending time in the news, like just spending time in the inbox without really getting anything done. Absolutely. And I mean, that's why, you know, you mentioned my book, Unsubscribe, which is really about, um, you know, kind of how to control this addiction to email that we all have. But one of the reasons that I thought it was worthwhile to um, 
you know, devote a sort of substantive amount of time and energy specifically talking about email is because I think that email is in many ways a microcosm of all of our challenges with distraction um, mm-hmm. and kind of with technology. Um, you know, so many of the concepts that I talk about in the book and the sort of whole first section of the book is really devoted to looking at the psychology behind why we find email so addictive and kind of how we can break free from it. And, you know, all of that same psychology about how email kind of intentionally or unintentionally taps into our brain chemistry um, and makes us, you know, almost crave it um, really also applies to, you know, social media and so many other kind of apps and uh, other pieces of technology that we deal with um, on a daily basis. So I think the lessons, um, you know, very much pertain and we can kind of go into some of that more specifics if you want to. Sure, sure. So it's really about managing information, right? I mean, we've got, it's coming in and it's going out and we have to do stuff with it and contribute to it. And I think email is a very kind of clear cut example of that. But I can certainly say that the, the ideas that you talk about in relation to email would definitely apply to other areas like Anything from requests from your children to (laughs) (laughs) the news, to social media, to updating your software, whatever. I think fundamentally there's a a question here about, because I know you've got, and it's a great book with lots of tips and techniques and and ways to manage the inbox. But the thing that I really took from it was the psychology. And I wondered if you could boil it down to an, an attitude that we should take to email. Because otherwise, it can end up taking an attitude to us, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think that you mentioned, you know, it's about managing information. I think it is about information, but I think actually it's about managing our attention even more so, right? Because we have yeah. this sort of, um, you know, massive overload of information. And so, you know, the real challenge is about, well, what am I going to pay attention to? And the the challenges that you have to choose. You can't pay attention to everything, right? Everything can't be urgent. And if we boil it down to, you know, one attitude um, about email, I think it really, at this point, it's this idea that um, we have to let go of inbox zero. I just don't think that's relevant anymore. Um, You know, when that phrase was originally coined, it was... um, back in, I believe, 2007 by Merlin Mann, um, you know, at the site 43 yeah. Folders. He was kind of a productivity yeah. guru. Um, but what happened is literally just months after he coined that phrase was the introduction of the first iPhone, right, which started the smartphone revolution, <laughs> which started this fact that our email could follow us around, right, everywhere. Right. And not yeah. only could our email follow us around, it also meant that you know, people who could email us constantly had a a (laughs) mode to email us in their hand, in their pocket, right? And so that really led to this kind of exponential increase in access to you. You know, I really think we're at this moment where kind of anyone who has access to the internet has access to you. You know, if I... If I meet someone, I get their name, you know, I spend a minute or two um, online Googling them, I can probably find their email and I can probably show up in their inbox and I could probably ask them to do something for me if I wanted to, right? And yeah. so I think the the upshot is that we have so much more noise in our inbox, um, you know, than we did maybe five or even 10 years ago. And so, you know, this idea of inbox zero, this idea of responding to everyone is not relevant. And so we have to take a much more sort of aggressive attitude um, about setting limits, about what really is urgent, about um, whether or not we really do need to respond to every email, um, about the frequency with which we're going to check our email. Um, we just really have to be, you know, quite vigilant about setting some limits for ourselves so that that email doesn't just kind of eat up a, a you know, much larger portion of our time than, um, it really deserves. Right. And just in case anyone's unclear, you know, the, the term inbox zero means to having finished email, to having answered and, and cleared all the emails in your inbox. So you have a pristine, white, empty space. And it's kind of unachievable is what we're saying, right? <laughs> I think, I mean, it depends on the, you know, the volume of email that you get. But I think the more important thought is that it's very likely that it is not the most constructive use of your time for you to methodically and thoroughly respond to every request 
in your inbox, especially when you weigh it against the other things that you might want to accomplish in your life. If you look at the numbers, how much time the average person spends in their inbox on a daily basis, and you add them up and you project them out across the course of an entire career, so 40, 45 years, um, depending on whether you look at the higher or the lower end of the numbers, most people will spend about four to five years of their life on email Ooh. at the current rates, oh, which I'm they check email. Sorry, my skin is crawling as you speak. Right? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I don't think you want to look back at the end of your life and, uh, you know, realize that you spent five years on email. It's terrible, you know, so you have to start, um, you know, thinking a little bit more about about what your priorities really are for what you want to pay attention to. Right. Because, I mean, there was that famous article that went around on the Internet a few years ago, the top five regrets of the dying. And none of them were, I wish I'd answered more email. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it was much more. I wish I'd been kinder. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and, you know, done the work. I think one of them was that, you know, done the work that I found meaningful. Mm -hmm, Something mm -hmm. like that. So Yeah. I think um, a, a bit to do with risk taking and, you know, a bit more like, oh, let's, if I want to do that, I should just go for it. You know, a bit more of right, that mindset. So. So let us all remember we are up against this existential issue as we look at our inbox every morning. <laughs> it's very existential. The original title for the book was actually Getting Over Email Angst because I felt like Ooh. it was very existential. <laughs> it is, but because otherwise I think it's the mindset of, oh, it won't matter. Just I'll just check my email. I'll just do, I'll just do this as if these few seconds of my life, they don't really matter. But if mm -hmm. we're not careful, they add up to a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Um, I think it's an Annie Pruel, Annie Pruel quote, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. You know, mm -hmm. it does, it all adds up. Okay. There was one idea in the book that really stood out and helped me get my head around this and spend less time is around askers and guessers, you know, because there's this sense that, well, if somebody emails me, I really should reply. It's rude not to reply. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can share a bit about askers and guessers and how that can help us. Yeah. Well, that was actually one of my favorite uh, concepts from the book. And when I learned about it, it, it really revolutionized um, my attitude towards email and, and, and requests in general. And it's just sort of this, it's, it's just kind of a theory. It's not like a scientifically proven theory. It's sort of a cultural theory that really resonated with me. And the idea is that um, people are either raised in sort of an ask culture or a guest culture. And if you're raised in an ask culture, then um, you're taught that it's always okay to ask for something, but with the understanding that the other party can always decline and that's perfectly fine. Um, whereas if you're raised in a guest culture, you're taught that you should only ask for something if you're very sure that the person that you're asking is likely to say yes. And so you learn to become sort of attentive to these sort of subtle signs and signals that people give off that indicate if they might be, you know, receptive to a proposal. Now, the problem emerges when kind of askers confront guessers, you know, so you get one of those emails from someone who's like, you know, can I stay at like your studio apartment for free for a week? Or, you know, will you photograph my wedding? You know, like one of those types of requests where you're like, oh, come on, you know, and you feel sort of put upon and aggravated. And if you have that reaction, you're probably coming from a guesser mindset because what happens when the askers clash with guessers is the guessers assume that askers share their mindset. So they assume that this person would only be asking if they assumed that they expected, you know, they expected you to say yes. Right. Um, yeah. but the asker doesn't have that attitude at all. They're just sort of throwing spaghetti against the wall. You know, they're just kind of like, well, might as well ask, you know, you never know, but they would be <laughs> totally fine if you say no. So I think that that concept, I very much have kind of this guesser mindset, you know, like I don't really ask someone for something unless I think it's appropriate, unless I think they'd be likely to say yes. And so, you know, I used to get those type of requests that would seem, um, you know, quite brazen or presumptuous, you know, and they sort of either make me angry or either make me feel sort of anxious because I felt kind of bad declining them. But I think once you sort of start thinking about those two archetypes, the asker and the guesser, it kind of frees you up to take 
take a little bit more of a relaxed mindset towards some of those requests, you know, and, and, and rather than assuming that someone expects you to say yes, you know, kind of just assume also that, you know, maybe they expect you to say no, and that's fine too, because I think that... To get back and to agree or, or even to respond. I mean, like, so I guess the question is, you know, supposing this somebody's listening to this and going, oh gosh, I'm a, I'm a guesser too. I've got all these requests in my inbox. I don't know what to do. What, what would you recommend? Well, I think one of the things that actually really um, uh, sort of eases, uh, you know, the sort of, we'll say, you know, psychic load of responding to those sorts of requests is to create sort of uh, templates for how you reply to them. So, you know, most of us have a common sort of request that we get depending on our profession. You know, for me, I, I, um, because I write a lot about careers and productivity, I get a lot of requests for interviews or commentary for articles, you know, which I may or may not want to participate in. Um, but I think if you kind of, I use Gmail, so you can use something, you know, called canned responses in Gmail, which, uh, sort of allows you to create these little templates you can yeah. quickly pull up, you know, but you don't have to use Gmail to do that. You can keep them somewhere on your desktop. Um, But I just create these sort of short templated replies for the different types of things that I frequently have to say no to. And so then it's sort of, it's not like, you know, every time you need to say no, you sort of have to like work up the energy like afresh, (laughs) you know, to create the sort of tactfully worded email. You kind of already have it, you know? And and so I think that takes a lot of the sort of energy drain off doing those types of emails because you can actually still have a thoughtful email because you've spent some time writing it, but you just sort of use it again and again. Um, and, you know, people don't know that you're using it again. Like, so it's, it's perfectly fine. Um, and it allows you to, um, you know, give them a thoughtful response, but it also allows you to expend uh, less sort of uh, mental energy and angst on, on those responses. Yeah, that that's definitely something I've adopted. And what I find myself doing quite a lot of the time is, I've got the canned response, which is my basic template, but I'll usually tweak it and add and change it. I mean, partly because I'm a writer, so I can't leave a bit of text alone, but also just to personalize it a bit and make it more relevant to the individual. So, Yeah, I do the same. I think that's a great approach, like just having the template and then you add, you know, a few little individualized things to understand, you know, so they know like, oh, you really read my email and like you really understand what I'm trying to do. Um, So it doesn't, yeah, you you don't want that kind of cardboard feeling to it. Um, but you know, then that makes it something I think, you know, that takes maybe 30 seconds, um, you know, rather than five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It takes the agonizing out of the process. Following on from this, you know, you've got a statement in the book that maybe some people are going to find provocative where you say all email messages are not created equal. What did you mean by that? Well, I think that, you know, an email from your boss is not the same as an email from your intern is not the same as an email from your grandmother, you know, if your grandmother knows how to email. Um, You know, there's differing levels of um, urgency to and importance to the different emails that you receive. And I think that we have uh, particularly, you know, I don't know, maybe it's even because of the way that our inboxes look, you know, I mean, you, you open your inbox, right? Every message looks exactly the same. I mean, maybe it could have a flag or a star, but they all look like they have equal weight. Um, and you know, then we have this kind of idea, like we're just going to like plow through them and like get that unread message count done. Um, you know, the way that it sort of looks and the way that it functions doesn't really encourage us to think about whether this email is more important, you know, than that email. Um, but you know, every email does not warrant a reply within five minutes or does not warrant uh, a reply within two hours or even the same day. And so I think it's very useful to, um, you know, what I recommend in, in the sort of chapter that you mentioned that quote from is kind of separating, um, you know, even just mentally kind of creating a sort of hierarchy of the different types of people, um, you know, that you work with and email with on a daily basis. So you kind of can start to prioritize a little bit better. So thinking about, you know, who are your VIPs? Who are the four, five, six people who really do need an urgent response? Um, you know, who are the key collaborators, the people who you work with on a daily basis, um, you know, who need relatively quick responses from you, but, you know, maybe not right away. Um, You know, who are the sort of people who are more, um, you know, just kind of fun to interact with, but, you know, not necessarily crucial to pushing 
key uh, projects forward, you know, and then there's this kind of whole huge group that really takes up a, a large part of our inbox is just a group that I call randoms, you know, which is just sort of the people <laughs> you, you never met, you don't know who they are, and they show up in your inbox uninvited. Um, and, you know, so I think you have to prioritize those different groups, um, you know, very differently in terms of the, um, you know, the speed with which you, um, you know, decide to reply and, and whether you decide to reply at all. Um, you know, I just have a rule for myself that I don't respond to emails um, from people I don't know um, on the day that I receive them. You know, I'm completely comfortable waiting 24 hours, if not more, to respond yeah. to those people because like, why do I owe them a response right away. You know, like, I don't know who they are. Like they've never met me, you know, as compared to someone with, you know, who maybe I'm working with a project, uh, on deadline, you know, so you have to kind of make those hard decisions, I think. Yeah. I think that's huge because otherwise, you know, as you say that the internet gives everyone access to you and everyone access to your day. You know, if anyone could potentially email you and derail your day today, then, um, you're not in the driving seat. Exactly. Um, you know, you just end up letting, letting other people dictate what you do with your day. And, you know, when you think about it in the context of, you know, the type of people who are listening to this program, people who have ambitions to, you know, launch businesses, to move, um, you know, amazing creative projects forward, you know, you have to think about it in the context of, do you want to sacrifice you know, that project? Do you want to not spend an hour or two on that project so that you can, um, you know, tend to these emails from um, people you've never met that are maybe not particularly important to what you really care about? You know, you have to kind of think about it in that context, I think. Okay. And then I'm just kind of following this thread through. So that logically, this means that sometimes we are the randoms. We are the people who are reaching out to somebody new and daring to show up in their inbox. I'm wondering how we can differentiate ourselves from the other randoms, you know, how we can cut through the chatter. Because I know the, the final section of your book is all about email style. You know, suppose I'm writing to somebody who, and I'm a guesser, so I'm a little timid and I may not be expecting that they would respond. How can I craft an email that would actually get to the point and communicate clearly with, and give me the, the most chance of getting a meaningful response? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I could talk about that at length, but um, I'll share maybe, you know, kind of three quick points about that. Um, mm -hmm. I do, you know, very much think, as you said, that, you know, we're kind of competing against, um, you know, what I call this kind of busy bias. Um, you know, we're all over busy, we're all overwhelmed, we're all over scheduled. Um, you know, so everyone has, uh, you know, maybe when you send someone an email, you know, you get kind of a quick flash of their attention. If you don't engage them, you know, then you've kind of already lost your chance, you know, particularly when you're, as you say, maybe kind of cold calling someone showing up in their, in their inbox unexpectedly. Um, and I think in those situations, a few things that are really important to do. Um, and the first is to just lead with the ask is to make it really clear what your email is about, what you want from them right away, not in a way that, it, um, you don't want to do it in a way that seems presumptuous, um, or overbearing, but to make it really clear, uh, you know, what you're about right away. So they don't have to read four paragraphs in to figure out what you really want. You know, you're probably going to have lost them by then. Um, the second point is to establish your credibility as quickly as possible. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, this kind of question lurking in the background every time we open an email now because we're so impatient, because we're so busy is really just kind of why should I care? So, mm -hmm. you know, why should they pay attention to you? Um, you know, whether it's kind of, uh, you know, giving them some, let's say I was inviting someone to my conference, you know, letting them know, okay, you know, there's a thousand people who attend. That's at a very impressive venue, uh, Lincoln Center in New York City. You know, here's the name of a few other, the names of a few other people who are speaking, who I know that you would respect, you know, yeah. putting out, you know, whether it's quick stats or data to establish your credibility or even just something that you've noticed about them or something that you have in common with them, something to kind of make them pay attention to you. Um, and then always kind of making the next step clear or making it easy to say yes. I think one um, place where people fall down a lot in email, and I certainly get these emails a lot, is where you send an email and it's just like not really clear what the next step is, or it's not yes. even yes. very clear yes. what you're asking for. You know, it's sort yeah. of like, 
and and so then you have to send them an email if you even feel like that's worth your time to ask them what they're really asking you, you know, or what the next step is. And so you always want that next step to be really clear, just really clear how, um, you know, making it easy for them to say yes. Um, and then the final point I think, which is really funny is, um, I think it's really important to, especially when you have one of those, you know, cold call emails, like it's really important to you. You spend a lot of time crafting it is to pre-mail, um, excuse me, preview that email on your phone. So you see what it looks like yeah. on a smartphone, because a lot of times, um, you know, something looks reasonable. You usually draft those type of emails on your desktop or your laptop. Um, you know, and they might look like they're a reasonable length. You look at it on a phone, you know, it looks like war and peace. Um, <laughs> and, you know, no one wants if, if someone feels overwhelmed, then you've you probably already lost them. So, you know, kind of previewing yeah. it on your phone and then editing accordingly. So, you know, it looks like something that is uh, realistically digestible. It's sort of a strange um, thing to do, but I've found, um, incredibly, incredibly useful because, you know, over half of emails are open for the first time on a smartphone. So chances are that's, that's where someone's going to read it first. So you want it to look, you know, kind of manageable. I think that's a general rule. It's very easy to make an email too long, but it's quite hard to make mm. it too short. So unsubscribe, great book. I recommend it to people for two reasons. One, if you use email, which is everybody, <laughs> it will really help you with a lot of, you like, Jocelyn says the angst of email, but also by extension, it teaches you how to manage your attention and the flow of information in and out of your life in the 21st century. So great book, Jocelyn. What's next for you? Well, right now I um, am in the process of uh, working on um, a new podcast myself, um, which is mm -hmm. uh, going to be called Whistling in the Dark, which is going to be um, about how to build sort of more creativity, how to find more creativity and confidence and calm in this world of fast paced change, um, yeah. which I think is something that, that many of us are seeking. Um, you know, so it'll focus on a variety of different topics. Uh, the first episode that I'm working on now is about, um, decision-making, um, but it'll also get into things, um, you know, like what we've talked about today, kind of managing your attention, thinking about sleep. So kind of a full, you know, thinking about confidence, kind of a full, very broad range of topics, but that, that are all sort of about figuring out how to help people find more kind of creativity and meaning in their daily lives. And what'll be kind of unique about it is the format will actually be about three interviews for every episode, um, trying Ooh. to get the um, kind of a full, like the sort of kaleidoscopic um, perspective on an issue. So mm -hmm. for this decision-making episode that I'm working on um, right now, for instance, I talked to a Slovenian philosopher who um, writes about the anxiety of choice. I talked to um, a business school professor and researcher who um, studies intuition and how that helps us make decisions. And then I talked to um, a VC and an entrepreneur about how, um, you know, they kind of you know, advise, um, you know, startups about, you know, making hard choices and, and hard decisions. So every episode is going to try and get that sort of same um, range of kind of, you know, really looking at um, people who are thinking deeply about a topic, but yeah. also looking at people who are dealing with it in a very kind of pragmatic, um, you know, experiential kind of boots on the ground type of way. Mm -hmm. I love it. So you get different perspectives on the same issue in each episode. Yeah. And I think just trying to bring, and this is even sort of the way that I tried to build out the structure of, of unsubscribe, you know, to kind of get some of that high level, um, you know, kind of psychological sort of almost more philosophical perspective on a problem and, and why maybe we behave in a certain way with regard to decision-making or with regard to how we spend our attention, but then also kind of drilling down to, okay, what are some sort of like very practical, you know, recipes for how I can use those insights to then, you know, manage my day better, manage my time better, make better decisions. Excellent. Well, do let me know as soon as that launches, Jocelyn. I'll make sure I announce it on the show. Anything else in the pipeline that you're allowed to talk about today, Jocelyn? Yeah, a few things. Um, I'm also working on um, an online course. I'm still kind of uh, workshopping the title for that, but that's very much going to be um, around a topic that we sort of 
uh, touched on as we spoke today, which is this idea of, of fake productivity. So kind of, mm-hmm. it'll really, it's actually going to take kind of all of this, uh, you know, sort of seven, eight years of experience that I had at 99U and absorbing all of this kind of research around productivity and creativity and kind of distilling it down into, um, you know, maybe 15 or 20 kind of core concepts um, that I think people need to know to be really um, productive as creative people specifically, and also kind of how to, but leading with this idea of how to kind of deprogram yourself from this idea of fake productivity, you know? So, okay, how do I deprogram myself from fake productivity? And then how, you know, do I structure my day, structure my focus, structure my goals so that I can actually focus on more meaningful work? So, that's the other kind of project on the immediate horizon. And then the third project is I'm actually working on a new conference. Um, you know, as we talked about, I did a conference for many, many years at 99U, which was, I really enjoyed. Um, so I'm working on a new conference that is going to be um, here in New York. Um, I'm still figuring out the the time frame, but probably next spring, spring of 2018, um, that will focus on how you kind of build and evolve a career um, in this kind of landscape of fast-paced change and, and mm-hmm. you know, fairly massive uncertainty that we live in yeah. now. Um, yeah. You know, so how do you constantly make sure that you're kind of um, adapting and, and upping your game and, um, you know, moving forward um, in the things that really, really matter to you um, when you're navigating so much kind of change and uncertainty. So that'll be the theme there. And do you have a name for the conference? I'm still, I'm still figuring that out. I really love, I really love uh, naming things, but so that also means I sort of dwell in the process for a while sometimes. Good, good. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll let people know when it does. And really, you know, having gone to several of the 99U conferences that Jocelyn was instrumental in, in putting on, it really was a unique atmosphere. So I'm sure this is going to be very special and worthy of a trip to New York. I hope so. Conferences are fun. I love getting into all the little details. So this is the point of the show where I ask my guest to set a challenge for you listening to it that you can execute this week and which is going to be related to my guest's work. So Jocelyn, what challenge do you have for listeners to take on this week? My challenge would be for everyone to try to batch check their email for the week. So what that means is quite literally checking your email in batches. So setting aside, ideally, I think two or three kind of discrete time blocks every single day, depending on your volume of email, maybe it's 20 minutes or 30 minutes at a go to kind of during that that time period, completely focus 100% on your email and process it. And then when you're outside of one of those batch email checks, then, you know, focusing 100% on your other work, be it creative or administrative or whatever you're trying to do. Um, The reason that that's the challenge is that uh, research has shown that people who check their email in batches versus, say, people who check their email reactively, you know, constantly check their email, multitask with other things, very notification driven. People who check their email in batches are more productive, they're less stressed, and they're happier. So I think it uh, is worthwhile for listeners to give that a shot and, you know, see how it changes their perspective and their attitude towards email. I love it. Partly because I can hear the howls of protest all over the world (laughs) from people saying, no, but I need to be able to respond immediately. And realistically, unless we're firefighters and we get notifications of fires through the emails, then most email really can wait a few hours. Yeah, almost all email really can wait. And if you need to, you know, and let's say you use an iPhone, you know, turn on VIP notifications for, you know, those few people who you just have to respond to right away. But as you say, you know, almost all emails um, can wait. And it's a, you know, a very good uh, exercise in uh, practicing kind of building your uh, ability to focus. And if you're really concerned about the VIPs, then tell, give them another way to reach you. I mean, this is one thing I do with all my coaching clients. I say, if it's urgent, you've got my phone number, call me or text me. If it's an email, then I'm assuming it's not urgent. And they all understand that and they love it because they know they can reach me when they need to. So, you know, think about those VIPs in your life and, and make sure they're taken care of. But other than that, 
I love Jocelyn's challenge because it's one of the things that changed my life a few years, quite a long time ago when I adopted this way of working and it, it really freed up so much more mental space for me. Yeah. I mean, I think that most of us are not conscious of the sort of uh, drain that, you know, multitasking with email kind of constantly, you know, switching back and forth and, you know, constantly just dipping in to check your email for just a minute really places on our attention and our ability to execute creatively at a very high level. Um, you know, so when you um, shift to, you know, mode of batching, you really are allowing yourself to um, bring 100% of your concentration to, um, you know, your creative work outside of email, which is incredibly important. And I think, uh, you know, many of us are, are not really in the habit of doing these days. Excellent. And Jocelyn has very kindly donated three copies of Unsubscribe, the book, How to Kill Email Anxiety, Avoid Distractions, and Get Real Work Done. So as usual, when you've completed the challenge by the end of Friday this week, leave a comment in the show notes underneath. And at the end of the week, not only will you get my feedback on the task for the group, but three commenters will be drawn at random as usual and we will mail you a copy of Jocelyn's book. So for the instructions on how to do the creative challenge, keep listening after the interview. I'll give you the detailed instructions on how that works. In the meanwhile, where can people find you online? Obviously, put unsubscribe into Amazon or your local bookshop, and that is a great book to get. Where should people go to kind of mission control for Jocelyn online? Uh, they can find me at uh, jkglei or jkglei.com, which is my website. Um, yeah, which has uh, an excellent newsletter they can subscribe to if they'd like to as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jocelyn. Like I say, I do realize you are somebody who spends her time on meaningful work, and it's great that you found time to talk to our listeners today. I have always find it meaningful and, and worthwhile talking to you. I'm sure people will get a lot of value from this. So thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. My pleasure. In just one moment, I'll tell you how you can take part in this week's creative challenge. But before that, I'd like to ask you to do one small thing that will make a really big difference to the show. And that's to pop along to iTunes and press the little purple subscribe button. And if you're really feeling full of enthusiasm for the 21st century creative, maybe you could leave a brief review explaining why you like the show. The reason for this is that it wakes up the little gremlins inside the iTunes store. Because there's so many shows, the gremlins can't be expected to figure out which ones are good and which ones will appeal to this person or that person. Plus, they're gremlins. They don't have your good taste and discernment. So they're relying on you to press the subscribe button, to leave a review or a rating, because that lets them know that this kind of show is the kind of show that appeals to this kind of person. In other words, other people of creativity, good taste and discernment. And the Gremlins will put the show in front of them, and more people will discover it, they will benefit, and critically, the gremlins can knock off work early. So please, consider the gremlins. Press the magic subscribe button. Leave them a review. Jocelyn has set you a really testing creative challenge this week. One that should really stretch your ability to resist temptation. If you're up for the challenge, here's how it works. The challenge is to check and answer your email in batches, in about two or three batches each day. So this means closing email in your browser and especially disabling it on your phone so you can't just check it with a click of a mouse or the swipe of a finger. Decide in advance what time of day and for how long you're going to check your email. Jocelyn recommends about 20 to 30 minutes at a time. And during this time, focus 100% on your email so that you get it done faster and you're leaving better replies. 
And the great news is this will free you up outside of email time to focus 100% on other things, whether that's creative work, time with friends and family, or just stopping and smelling the roses. And remember, if you have VIPs in your life who need to be able to contact you urgently, make arrangements for them to do this. Either by switching on VIP email alert on your phone, which means if you get an email from a certain person, your phone vibrates or gives you an alert, or preferably asking them to text you or call you on your phone instead of emailing if they need you urgently. Once you've completed the challenge, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm/7 and tell us firstly whether you managed to achieve it and, crucially, what you learned from the experience. You have until midnight United States Pacific Time this Friday, 14th of July, 2017, to complete the challenge and leave your comment at 21stCenturyCreative.fm/7. Once the challenge has finished, I will pick three winners at random from the comments, who will each receive the prize of Jocelyn's great book, Unsubscribe, which she has kindly donated. I want to stress I'm picking the winners at random. It's not a competition, so I won't be judging the comments or ranking them in any way. Over the weekend, I will send a bonus recording with my feedback on your comments and what we can all learn from the challenge. I'll also be sharing reflections from my own experience as a writer, a coach, and a user of email. Please note, the feedback recording will not be released on iTunes or anywhere else the podcast is syndicated. It will only be available via the 21st Century Creative email list. To join the list, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm bonus and enter your email address in the box. Not only will you get the feedback recordings for every creative challenge, you'll also get the 21st Century Creative Foundation course, a free, in-depth course to help you succeed as a creative professional. Okay, that's it for this week's challenge. You'll also find these instructions online at 21stCenturyCreative.fm7. Have a great time resisting temptation. I'm really looking forward to hearing how you get on. And stay tuned for another episode of the 21st Century Creative next week. <laughs>